Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Guys, here's a hard dose of the truth. You have to work at keeping your mental state in fighting shape, just like you would your body. And to do this, you're going to get the ultimate one-two punch of a training team to help you in this journey. My dear friend and colleague, Dr. Sportelli, is a double board certified psychiatrist who will be joining us today. We've always talked about how a clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist is a definitive power duo to help you get your mental health into tip top shape. And together we're going to tackle your big questions about all things mental health and help you to make significant strides in feeling and living well. I know so many of you are trying to put the unprecedented 2020 year behind you, but the truth is while we've made some strides on the pandemic, there's still a great deal of uncertainty about the future, a bit of looming gloominess about the present and our lives not quite being back to normal that causes us to feel anxious, restless, lethargic, and stressed. There are so many reasons that our mental health has taken a hit in the past months. So many of us have been in lockdown. We're bored. We're dealing with extensive exposure to conflicting and changing COVID information. It's so hard to separate work from home. Our options are limited about what we can do for fun and fears of infection are making us compulsively clean and sterilize. We have worries about our jobs, finances, well-being of our family, so much stuff. We're just dealing with a lot of things all at once. So no wonder people aren't feeling their best. Many people are experiencing symptoms and don't even know it because there is so much to do every day, so much information flying your way that most of us don't have the time to sit down, take a beat, and assess the state of our mental health in a deeper way. The truth is no one is gifted with lifelong superb mental or physical health. You have to work at it. Take care of the one mind and body you've been given in this life. But if you do, the rewards will be so plentiful and 100% worth your time. And any of us can do it. Wherever you're starting from, whatever your biological and genetic risks, and even if you've had painful and traumatic experiences in your life or are played with self-doubt, you can work towards better mental health anytime and reap the benefits of your efforts. And now that we're at the beginning of a new year, it's traditionally a time where we take stock of our goals review where we've been and where we want to go. And I really urge you to put your mental health at the top of your bucket list this year. Prioritize your mental fitness and let's get your psychological wellness into tip top shape. So what are you waiting for? Keep tuning in for this episode jam packed with scientific practical advice you can put to use now. I am thrilled to introduce my good friend and colleague, Dr. Sportelli. Dr. Dom is double board certified in adult general psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry through the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. He's on the front lines of mental health care at hospitals, emergency rooms, outpatient clinics, detox facilities, and private practice. Dr. Sportelli is a regular media contributor, and his mission is to educate, destigmatize, and empower everyone in the field of behavioral health. His latest project is his brand new podcast, Psych Unfiltered. It's available on Apple Podcasts, and it's a must listen. Dr. Dom is widely sought after for his expertise on the latest in medical and behavioral health, child and family psychiatry, and neuropharmacology. 
He has such a caring demeanor and a scientific approach to education, diagnosis, and treatment, and tirelessly works to break barriers in our field and correct misperceptions that might get in the way of someone getting the professional help they need during crucial times. So welcome to the show, Dr. Sportelli. I'm so excited to have you today. Dr. Judy, this is the greatest thing ever, and I loved your intro. I loved your intro. It resonates with me so much, and your listeners are lucky to have you. Um, so I'm so, so, so happy to be here because what we know is the gold standard of treatment is psychiatry and psychology. So I'm just going to go on a limb. Can I say like dynamic duo? Can I do it? Can I say yes. like, can I do it? All right, good. So um, yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. I'm always excited to work with you. And I was just telling my producer yesterday that I was like, we're kind of like superheroes in the field of behavioral <laughs> health. Can we be something we had to think about? It. I'm like, what are we like the Justice League of mental health, the X-Men of London? Like, what are we doing here? But I'm glad that you said the dynamic duo. I love it. So let's run with that. And Dr. Spertali, I've known you now for, I think, over three years. We met on the doctors yeah. for the first time, worked together on that show. And then we kept in touch since then. And now we're both med circle educators as well. And that was just a total coincidence. And that was really fun. But it's just allowed us another way to continue to collaborate. Yeah. And over those three years, I've seen an amazing thing happen. I've seen more behavioral health awareness. And, you know, I remember, I remember going on the doctors and we'd have a couple, you know, specific topics to talk about here and there. But just over the course of the past few years, it's it's like warmed my heart to see that psychiatry, psychology, and behavioral health awareness, destigmatization of just some of these diseases and illnesses, it just feels so good. And, and it's just the momentum is building up. And that's why I just love being here. Because to me, the more you can educate people about behavioral health and mental health, the better off they're going to do. Right? I mean, we've known that in medicine for a really long time, but in behavioral health especially, and that's what this is about. I definitely think that we've been making really significant strides, especially in the last few years, on destigmatizing mental illness and having these regular conversations about mental health and not feeling like people are going to judge you for it. I know we still have a lot of work to do, but I do want to acknowledge the progress that you're seeing. So, Dr. Dom, I have a question for you, and I know you have a strong opinion about this. What is the incorrect versus the correct way? to look at how to treat mental illness. I'm in it. I'm in the trenches, trenches, Dr. Judy, and I see so many different types of treatments. So in my opinion, I don't think mental health should be treated as if we're treating high blood pressure or if we're treating heart disease or, or anything else. I think mental illness needs to be looked at in an incredibly well-rounded spectrum, including your biology and the medicines, but also the psychology and the sociology behind what's driving that potential problem, whether it's depression or anxiety. And I think a lot of docs are treating this as a quick fix with a pill. And I just don't think that's how it works. I couldn't agree with you more because I think that sometimes people are uncomfortable with all the complexities and the nuances, but we really do need to slow down and take a look at it. Even if it comes from a good place, we want to fix problems as quickly as possible, but you can't rush to the end. The process is really important to be able to get it right. And Dr. Dom, I know that you and I both trained around the same time. We actually graduated around the same time and we were definitely 
exposed to the school of thought where we have to be blank slates for our patients. We're not supposed to self-disclose. But I know that more recently you've become more comfortable talking about some of your earlier struggles. Can you tell me a bit about that? So when I grew up, Dr. Judy, I was so anxious. I experienced anxiety and panic attacks. And I think that may have manifested into some pretty significant depression in my adolescent years and my young adult years. So so the point to that is that I sincerely know what it feels like to be sitting in that chair as a patient slash client. I know what that feels like. And I know the frustration and wanting the quick fix. I remember going to the doctor saying, please just give me a pill to feel better. I just, I just want to feel better. I want to feel myself again. I hate the way this makes me feel. But now that I know and I've experienced that, I think going through it, the education and guidance by saying, listen, we can certainly prescribe a medicine that's going to help, but this is going to take a little work and we're going to put this together or we're going to lay out a plan, but this is the expectation. And it's a little bit more than just taking a medication. And what I really appreciate about what you're saying is that Dr. Dom, people sometimes will look at you and they'll think, oh, he must have it all figured out. He must have a perfect life. But sometimes it's really powerful for someone who is struggling to hear that you've had to wrestle with these very same issues that you're now helping your patients with. And in some ways that gives you a little street cred, right? It's like, Hey, I've been through it and I know how difficult it is. I'm not just sitting in my ivory tower telling you what to do with your problem because I've been on the other side. And I do think there's so much power in that. So thank you for sharing that story. I think it's incredibly important. Now, you know what, it, you know what it's like to me? It's like, do you want the football coach that just reads everything out of a book and never stepped foot on the field? Or do you want somebody that's been there and played the game a little bit and knows what it feels like to get hit and knows what it feels like to get tackled right? and do that, right? So I am preaching from a point of personal experience as well as an education formally. And what I love about that is that is exactly how cognitive behavioral therapists like myself work. We have to go through the work of learning the skills, trying them out so that we can actually teach it to our patients and have that street yeah. cred too and say, here's what worked for me. Here's what didn't. Oh, I totally completely agree. Right. And, and you know what else? I mean, I was a fitness trainer when I was in graduate school and I sort of saw over the time period, what got people in shape. Right. And it was always challenging them over time. And what I learned about, obviously, and I didn't really know the specifics then because I was just in grad school, but your body adapts, right? Your body adapts to whatever it, its environment presents it with. So if your body is presented with heavy weight that it needs to push, right? It's, it's not that smart. All that it's doing is very primitively building muscle because it says, okay, I guess this is my job, right? I need to push mm -hmm. muscle. So I'm going to take energy and I'm going to build muscle. And if it's losing fat, because I'm doing a lot of cardio, I need that for energy. So I'm going to change. Well, guess what? I see so much correlation in mental health because our mind also is a product of our environment and adapts to what we feed it, right? Just as we feed our body with exercise, if we feed our mind with consistent negative thinking, if we feed our mind with yeah. consistent catastrophizing, if we feed our mind with a perspective of doom and gloom, well, then it's going to adapt to that and it's going to have to, and it's going to have to primitively be defensive and it's going to have to cope that way because it thinks that it's in an environment that's potentially dangerous or not pleasant, right? So I think that's very, very important to be aware. And, and again, I know you're like, you're like the CBT master and the ACT master, which I love. And that's why, <laughs> that's why I always refer my patients to good cognitive behavioral therapists, because what we're feeding our brain and, and what we're processing is just like what we're feeding our bodies when we're trying to work out and get better. And, 
And honestly, going through physiology training, going through medical training and psychiatry training, I'm like, oh my God, that totally makes sense, right? It's, it's complex, but mm -hmm. it's so important and perspectives are important. Absolutely. And the nuances and trying to understand your own nuances are worth it. And really the analogy of feeding your brain, feeding your mind, the way that you're nourishing your body, that is so appropriate to just this entire conversation about how we can all boost our mental wellness. And really also it's so interesting because right now I think people are struggling with boredom, not having room for creativity, feeling like they're stuck in a rut. And this is another thing that's kind of interesting about both of our origin stories. We both actually have a performing arts background. That's always been a hobby for both of us. You're a musician. I'm a musician. You've acted in commercials and a few movies. I was in theater and also acted when I was in grad school. And I continue to really love expanding my own mind in that way. And whenever I've had a really stressful day, I can't tell you how much joy it brings me to just sit down at my piano and play and give yourself room to do it just for the process. Like there's no end goal necessarily. Sometimes when I'm playing, it's not like I'm trying to finish something. It's really just for the pure enjoyment of it. So what are some of the things that you do now to keep yourself mentally healthy, especially during this difficult time where I know you're seeing it, I'm seeing it. A lot of my patients are struggling more than ever. So, you know, when I think a really, really important thing with individuals is learning a little bit about yourself and knowing that it's okay to think outside the box and do what works for you. So as I was going through some difficult times in my life, I realized that music and art was something that gave me personally this expression. And, you know, I use the word ineffable. There, there are no words, mm -hmm. right? Like music is this universal thing. And, and for me, when I was able to sit down with my guitar, and again, just like you said, not to compose something, not to write music for an end, like for a means to an end, not to produce something, not to be a famous singer, right? <laughs> just to, to dance the dance, mm -hmm. right? Just to dance the dance and, and immerse myself in it. And that artistic expression was so incredibly important for me. And again, not for everyone, but when I, when I deal with adolescents in my practice, you know, I, I always encourage them to think about outlets, things that, and, and who cares what everyone else is doing? And that's my point. Who cares? Let's look at you. Let's really dig deep in what, where's the passion? You know, where's that meaning? Where is that? What, what makes the the hair in the back of your neck stand up when you're alone. What, what gives you goosebumps, right? I want to know that because that's what we're going to use and cultivate. So when I'm stressed, when, you know, when I have a difficult day at the hospital, um, I do physical exercise. That That's one of my go-tos. Physical exercise is really important. And again, it's funny because we do these things at work and then all of a sudden we read these journal articles and we go, Hey, look at that. You know, you increase dopamine, you increase norepinephrine, you, you know, you increase serotonin, you decrease, um, corticosteroids and your immune system goes up and your mood goes up. Right. So we go, wow, it actually, there's science behind this. It works. And the same thing with music and the same thing with art and the same thing with drawing and, and all of that. So, so for me personally, it's exercise and fitness, it's music and it's nature. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there's something very, very, very therapeutic about nature. And again, this is me, right? I learned this about myself, but I would also encourage people to explore these things. You know, personally, things like nature, for example, I think it has a very significant existential sort of yes. psychology quality, meaning that 
you know, when, when you hike to the top of a mountain or get outside or stand in front of an ocean, you feel as though there has to be something bigger and better than you out there, right? And, and what that does is it sort of minimizes the issues that you've been processing in your mind for a really long time. And, and it, it sort of makes your problems seem a little less important. And, um, and I think that's a very, very important thing to do because when we're alone and we, you know, we get in our heads and I've said this before, when those thoughts are inside your head, they sort of, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And every once in a while we need a reminder. I think we need a little bit of a reminder of how we're part of something a little bit bigger and the things that we tend to make really, really bad. If we relook at them, if we change our perspective slightly, they might not be so bad. Right. And it's all about finding your own individual joy, no matter what everybody else is doing. I love your list. Physical exercise is huge for me. And whenever I'm running, I'm thinking, yes, I'm getting that (laughs) natural dopamine hit. And I agree with you about nature. You know, uh, when I'm in nature, it's just that sense of awe. And we all need that. We need that sense of awe when we're first discovering something for the first time as a child. I feel that every time when I'm in nature. And nature is the quickest way to get me to mindfulness because I'm one of those restless Mm -hmm. people. And it's hard for me to settle down sometimes. But when I'm in nature, that's when I can find that peace and that existential part of ourselves, knowing that there's something bigger than ourselves. That's really comforting in a time when things are difficult. So I appreciate your answers. And we recently did an IG live together, Dr. Dom, and we had so many questions. We didn't even get to all of them. I got even more questions today. The listeners of my podcast were really excited that you were coming on. And I wonder if you're ready to tackle some of these questions together. Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So the first question is from Helen on Twitter. And I think this is such a relatable issue that she's having. So she says, I'm a busy working mom. And sometimes I feel like I barely have time to sit down. Lately, I've taken up mindfulness and taking moments for myself. And when I do, more anxiety comes up than ever. (laughs) Is this normal? This makes me super stressed out. It's even more terrible than when I'm running around all day. <laughs> I don't you get it? I completely I totally understand. Get it. <laughs> I, I completely understand. And, and, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, you look online and you look at some of these tips and we're saying, Hey, mindfulness, 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 and sit down and breathe and meditate, and let your thoughts go. Right. That's not easy. First of all, um, it's not easy and it does take practice. But look, just like anything else, I want to remind this listener that it's not a one-size-fits-all treatment. It's not a one-size-fits-all therapeutic intervention. And some people in research studies, I think I read one that was about one out of 12 people, actually will have a little bit of a bump in anxiety or a bump mm-hmm. in depression when they start doing mindfulness. And, and that's important to know. It's, it's not for everybody. So, so first and foremost, don't get down on yourself if it's not something that works for you. But what I, what I would say is before you give up on it, make sure you're doing it appropriately. And, and there are a lot of ways to do that. You know, there's guided meditation. There, there are individuals that, that sort of specialize in mindfulness techniques and make sure you're doing it right. I've seen circumstances where people are just simply not breathing appropriately and they end up hyperventilating, which will make them more nervous, right? So, you know, so for example, just make sure that you're taught how to breathe properly in your mindfulness practice, because if you're not, that, that in and of itself can make you anxious. The other thing is, you know, some people just by nature, and and I'm one of them, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people where it's like busy mind, busy body, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I keep my body going and I'm, I'm active and I'm distracting myself a lot. So when I sit down and shut my body down, 
and all those thoughts come flooding in, it's like a tidal wave. And that can be, that can be a little daunting for some people. It takes practice and it's hard to sort of face that sometimes and sort of let those thoughts go. And, you know, the whole process of mindfulness is not to be attached to those thoughts and just observe them without judgment. But for some people that's challenging. And, and I completely understand that. And I'll tell you what, when I first started doing mindfulness practices, I was very frustrated. You know, I was frustrated. I was like, what is this? This is, this is impossible. I can't not do this. I can't not engage my thoughts. Or, but what helped me was having someone that knew mindfulness take me through it and learn how to do it properly. So my first suggestion is don't give up on it. Have someone kind of take you through and make sure you're doing it right. And in that case, if you're doing it appropriately, properly, and it still doesn't work for you, that's okay. There's other, there's other things that you can do. I love those tips. And I would just want to add that, of course, if you're somebody who, as you mentioned, busy body, busy mind, when you finally sit down, you'll notice these uncomfortable feelings. And I think it's important not to run away from them because then you get yourself into an avoidance coping pattern. And we don't have to be afraid of our negative thoughts or feelings. Once we sit with them, we realize that they actually dissipate. If you don't hold on to them, if you don't go into a spiral, if you just accept that they're happening and almost picture negative feelings like waves in the ocean, they will come and they will go. They are transient states. And the the day and the moment that you first realize, wow, I sat with my negative feelings and I don't know, a few minutes later, they kind of started getting better. You start to feel more confident that you can do that, that you can regulate your emotions, that really you don't have to let your emotions dictate how you deal with the rest of your day. So I think it's important that Helen, you keep keep at it. And there's different ways of mindfulness too. I love mindfulness runs, mindfulness walks. You don't always have to just be sitting while you're doing mindfulness. So great question again, super relatable. So Dr. Dom, here's the next question. And I know you and I just spoke about this, how we're seeing a lot more of this lately. So Jenny on Facebook says, I'm finding myself drinking more than usual in the past several months. And I know I'm not alone because my friends are doing it too. How do you know when it's becoming a problem? And what advice do you have to get it under control? Awesome question. It's a really, really good question. It's so important to address because this is absolutely happening. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the front line in the medical hospitals where I'm treating more detoxes, I'm treating more overdoses, I'm treating, you know, more symptoms of withdrawal with alcohol. And the numbers reflect that, you know, it's, I read something that 54% increase in uh, alcohol sales as of March of last year, right? So, mm. you know, as soon as coronavirus became difficult, 54% increased by some studies. So alcohol sales have gone through the roof. But what history shows us is that this tends to happen. This tends to happen. It happened at 9-11. It happened in Katrina, you know, so when there are natural disasters and difficult times, alcohol use goes up. And listen, that again, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. And when you, when you study how alcohol works, alcohol is like taking Xanax or Valium or Ativan. And these are sedatives, right? So what it does is it puts the brakes on your brain. It activates something called GABA. And in your brain, you have GABA and you have acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is like the gas pedal. GABA is like the brake pedal. So when you drink, you, you, get GABA going and GABA just goes, whoa, we're just going to slow everything down. Mm -hmm. And guess what? That feels good for people that are having some challenging times. And, you know, listen, social disruption, isolation, decreased social support, the list goes on and on and on as to why people need that external coping strategy of alcohol, something that you can take a drink and you feel better, but take it from somebody that studies psychopharmacology and neurology very, very carefully. I think alcohol is probably 
one of the most inefficient drugs out there. And this is why if I were looking at alcohol as being somehow therapeutic and I reviewed all the data, I'd go, no way, this is a bad pill. This is bad. This is a bad medicine. And the reason for that is this. When you drink alcohol, you activate GABA, which is nice. It chills you out. You feel good. But the half-life is so incredibly short that literally within 30, 40 minutes to an hour, you've metabolized that already. And then once you metabolize that, guess what happens? The gas pedal goes back on. So that racing engine, as soon as that's metabolized, gets on the gas again. So what you need to do is you need to keep drinking. I got to have another one. I got to have another one. Oh my God, I got to have five. And then over time, you build a tolerance. And when you have a tolerance, then you got to drink more and more and more. And the rest is history. You can kind of see where that's going. Well, I appreciated the education about what happens in our brain when we reach for a drink and maybe the reasons for it. And so I would advise Jenny to add to your advice, Dr. Dom, that she take a beat and ask yourself, why am I reaching for alcohol right now? Because usually it's because you're trying to shut out an emotion or push down an emotion, you know, and people find that they then start to use alcohol for every single emotion in the book. And so think about other ways that you can achieve relaxation, that you can beat boredom, that you can deal with fears, you know, really expand your coping repertoire beyond just alcohol. But if you believe that alcohol is becoming a problem for you, there is no shame in that. And there are so many wonderful professionals who can help you get it under control. So great advice. So Dr. Dom, here's our next question. Walter on Instagram asks, is workaholism a diagnosis or could it be? I tend to spend a lot of time working and sometimes at the exclusion of other stuff in life, like hobbies or spending time with friends and family. I know people throw that word around a lot and I have even heard some liken it to an addiction. What do you think about that? Yes. So now, although we don't have an active medical definition called workaholic, it does meet a lot of criteria of an addiction. So we have to look at that. And you know, what's sad about this is that it flies under the radar and it flies under the radar because I I think that society kind of calls it a respectable addiction, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's some sort of pride that goes along with work because work equals productivity, right? So if you're a hard worker, it's something that we've always grown up with. Be a hard worker, be a hard worker, be efficient, be productive, get things done, make money. Those are all positive attributes in our mind. So we tend to chase that a little bit. But listen, people with acute stress issues, people with impulse control disorders, people with obsessive compulsive personalities, or even OCD in itself can really have a hard time with this. And it could manifest as overwork or quote, work addiction. So again, not a formal diagnosis, but absolutely follows this pattern that I think is very, very, very important to look at. And just like we just talked about when we're talking about alcohol, I think you have to pay attention to is anything negative happening in your life because of this work? The work is supposed to be positive. Your work is productivity for you and your family and to do good things, right? So Are you starting to neglect other activities like Walter said, right? Do you feel, is there any potential avoidance going on? Are you working to avoid something in your life that you don't really like or feel comfortable with? You know, is it some sort of coping strategy for you? Are you losing sleep? Is your physical health suffering, right? So these are all things to really consider when you're working a lot, because in that respect, it does act as an addiction. So we have to be super cautious and pay attention to those things. Yeah. 
I love that self-assessment tool of looking to see where it's impacting your life and if it's impacting your life negatively. And I love what you said also about people's idea of workaholism as almost like a respectable addiction. And another way to say this is that it's an egocentric behavior because it makes you feel good about yourself. You're being super productive. People look up to you because you get so much done. But what people don't sometimes realize is that it is another form of avoidant coping when it's taken to the extreme. So the fact that Walter is even asking this question, I think means that he's starting to think about that. And he's saying, do I need to take a look at this? And absolutely, just like how we started this conversation talking about what brings you joy, what are the things that you do just for the process and not for the outcome? I just really would encourage Walter and anybody else that this question speaks to that they start to think about that, you know, really give yourself that free time to just explore. Not everything has to be all about work and achieving goals. Great question. And here's another really good one. And I really feel for Jacqueline on Instagram. She says, I lost my grandmother during the pandemic and I'm having a really hard time with grieving her loss. It happened pretty suddenly. And I feel like I have so many unanswered questions and things I didn't get to say or do before she passed away. Any tips on how I can get through this? Wow, Judy, again, I'm so sorry for her loss. This, this is something that I'm seeing at the hospital consistently, and it, it breaks my heart personally. And and the problem with this is that, you know, mourning, mourning and grief is a process. It's a process that over time we've developed culturally acceptable processes to help us get through our mourning steps, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, this goes back to like Elizabeth, uh, Kubler-Ross, right? Kubler-Ross with denial, yeah. anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And we know now that it doesn't really go in that order sometimes for everybody, but it's a process and we have to go through that. Now with coronavirus, we're not even seeing our loved ones when they pass. We're, we're, we're not mm-hmm. getting the closure of that. And we're having these expedited funeral services where not many people can attend. I mean, so it's what it's doing. It's, it's throwing a wrench into that process, that process that we need that takes time to get through. So this is hard. This is absolutely positively hard. People feel very alone and isolated through this whole process. But just remember, remember that it's very, very important to keep contact and support with friends and loved ones and family throughout this process. And guys, grief is a form of love, mm-hmm. right? Don't don't think it's a bad thing, right? Like, why am I grieving? Why am I so-? Grief is love, you know? And, and I want to just remind you guys that and, and just understand that it's going to wax and wane. There are going to be days that you're going to feel good. There are going to be days that you feel horrible. That's completely normal. And acceptance of those emotions is really, really important too. I encourage anyone that's lost a loved one to, to really focus on seeing positivity in the future, um, making sure that you're not isolating socially, that you're sharing your story and what you feel, that you're sharing the story of the loved one that you lost <clears throat> and keeping their memory alive. And you know their, their memory is them continuing to live on with you in your life and your family's lives. Focusing on what you can control and also having a lot of compassion for yourself. There Mm -hmm. is no timeline for grief. There is no linear process for grief. As you mentioned, the Kluber-Ross model, I've been talking to my patients about a circle of grief because all different kinds of things can come back. I lost my grandmother five years ago. She is literally one of the most important people in my life, even to this day. And I still grieve her sometimes, but when I cry, when I think about her, I think about it as love as well. You know, if I didn't love her that much, I wouldn't still be crying about it. (laughs) Five years later, sometimes when I just look at an object, I'm like, whoa, this reminds me of my grandmother and all these feelings well up. So Jacqueline, good luck with that. And just remember to have some kindness for yourself and connect to your loved ones during this time. Here's the next question. 
Francis on Twitter asks, my kids' grades have been dropping over the past months. They're bored. They feel isolated. The list goes on. Any advice for us parents to keep our sanity and help our children? Well, Dr. Dom, I know you've got three boys. And this is so different, right? I mean, again, especially the younger children, not having that connection and having to learn their ABCs and reading when they're at a young age, all virtually. It's so confusing. So what advice do you have for Francis? So number one is I empathize with you because I am fighting this good fight right there with you, Francis. I have three young boys and they are all at home now and all online for schooling. And it's incredibly challenging. And I'm going to say something to you that I hope makes you feel better is that being board certified in child psychiatry doesn't help me. Um, and that's kind of, <laughs> that's no, no, no. Well, but, but there's a very important reason for that is because I know the books and I'm going to give you great advice, but I'm emotionally biased with my own kids. So that's, that's the point. The point is that it's challenging no matter what, but it's really hard for me because I'm emotionally involved, but I'll certainly hire a child psychiatrist to help me out. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. So anyway, so, so listen again, this is common. One of the most important themes today with these questions is I want people to normalize this a little bit. We are seeing decreased grades and decreased academic performance and behavioral issues across the board. So this is not just you. It's not an isolated incident. You're not a horrible parent, okay? It's very, very important to know that uncertainty and lack of structure and change of environment and increase in anxiety is this perfect storm to make kids unable to do their schoolwork and lack concentration. Guess what one of the biggest issues with anxiety? It's poor concentration, right? So, and mm -hmm. don't think that children aren't experiencing anxiety, not only because of coronavirus and the way the world has changed, but just the fact that their whole world has kind of changed in general, right? See, children respond very, very well to structure. Children need a foundation of structure. And when you take that structure away, we always tend to see little bumps in anxiety. So, so just know that, know that that's what's happening. So the important thing here is to maintain as much of that structure as you can as a parent. And I know it's hard. We're not teachers. We're not, you know, we weren't trained for this stuff, but I advise parents to Get out a whiteboard and say, this is what the schedule is going to look like today. And at least give it a shot. Provide your kids some structure. The other aspect of that quickly is that the emotional support, right? So it's very easy to yell at our kids when they're not getting good grades or to come across as critical and judgmental. And it doesn't get you anywhere. You know, I, I've been there too, right? I've gotten angry at my kids if their grades aren't good, if they're doing something silly. But remember, when you shame somebody or you criticize somebody, just you know, psych 101 from applied behavioral analysis, that never really gets you what you really need to get. So you can't shame somebody into doing good or criticize somebody into doing good. And if they do do good, it's not for the right reasons and it doesn't feel good. That's a whole different story. But the point is supportive emotionally. I always try to use the golden rule of talking to my kids with open-ended questions. So, hey, listen, it looks like your grades are going down. Do you have any ideas as to what's going on? Right? What's their response? Is there any way that we can work on this together? Do you have any ideas as to you know what might be happening and how we can improve this together? Those are great ways to allow the child to feel a little bit empowered, but also know that you're there to support them and you're going to structure their environment. I think that right now, everybody is struggling with this, adults and children. And I think we just all need to remember that structure is good for adults and it's good for children. And 
really uh, neurochemically structure is like a warm blanket for your brain. Our brains really do like patterns. It makes us relax. And so as much as you can to get back to the basics and have structure, wake up around the same time every morning, go to bed around the same time every night. That includes weekends and really making sure that when there are changes to the routine that is communicated in advance, whenever it's possible, And also I think role modeling, letting your children know, Hey, I'm frustrated too. You're not the only one. Let's work through this together. Open that door for that conversation. And as kids get older, you can process even more with them. So good luck, Francis. We're all fighting the good fight together. All of us are feeling isolated, bored, trying to figure it out. So we're going to get there together. Well, Dr. Dom, you're always such a wealth of information. And I just wanted to shout out your new podcast again. Can you tell people about Psych Unfiltered and what prompted you to start your podcast? Yeah, thanks so much. So Psych Unfiltered is sort of my just... I want to get out there and I want to educate people about psychiatry and mental health. And again, reducing stigma, telling a little bit about my story, because I want people to understand that, again, we're all human and I'm far from perfect. And my struggles have led me to learning a lot about how to help other people. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of that. And just, again, it's unfiltered. It's just real deal, you know, not pulling any punches, just sort of like psych at its lowest common denominator and and just telling, telling the real story. Well, you all have to check it out. It's a wonderful podcast and you should also follow Dr. Dom on Instagram. I will have all the links, including his podcast link and his social media link below in the show notes. Dr. Dom, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with me again. This has been really wonderful. It is the greatest thing to be here. And listen, if we help anybody today, it's 1000% worth it. Thank you so much for having me. Supercharged tips. Well, guys, what did I tell you? Dr. Dom is a huge wealth of information. And I'm so glad that he got to join me today to tackle your questions, because again, to keep your mental health in fighting shape, it's something that we have to continually work on. Nobody is finished with their journey. And I really encourage you not to be afraid of the journey. So today's supercharged secret is going to be all about how to get your mental health into fighting shape. My first tip is to adopt a training perspective. You heard Dr. Dom and I talk about this. It's just like your physical health. So just like the way you would train your body, you can train your mind too. So here's the challenge I have for you. Create a mental health training plan, just like you would when you train for any physical activity from establishing a new habit of working out three times a week to training for a mini marathon. Really think about a plan of how you're going to spend the time to prioritize your mental health. My second tip is to focus on incremental increases in your mental strength. Just like your body, the more you train, the stronger you'll become. You'll start to notice these shifts in your resilience, your motivation, your emotion regulation, and the ability to bounce back quicker from bad moods. But you're going to have days when you feel a bit tired, a bit weaker, just like when you train your physical body. And when that happens, allow yourself a rest day. It's okay. Remember, as long as you are making small strides and you're moving forward overall, you're doing great. Third tip is to get into a routine, prioritize your mental wellness activities and actually schedule them into your calendar. That is one of my biggest tips to cultivate a new habit, actually put it into your calendar and keep it as you would an appointment. 
take it seriously, like it is a job and don't break that appointment with yourself even if you have other things going on. And once you're able to do that, you'll notice how easy it is to work it into your schedule when you have that routine set up. My fourth tip is to follow the science. Oh my goodness, there is so much information out there. Sometimes it can be hard to filter through. So you need to start to develop a discerning eye for what's real and rooted in research versus what is fake news in the field of mental health. Know when something is a fad or built on rock solid investigations. We all have very limited time in a day. So you need to be efficient and find and do what really works. And hey, if you're ever questioning your sources of information, consult a professional. Some of my favorite doctors are so well read and they can point you in the right direction. The fifth tip is to look out for warning signs and to do something about them. Remember, mental health is on a continuum. At any given point in time, you might find yourself shifting up or down the continuum based on what's going on around you. So learn to self-assess and check in and don't be afraid of it. One of our listeners, Helen said, Hey, is it bad that when I finally slow down, I notice all these negative thoughts and feelings? No, it's normal. And it's okay because that's information that you can then act on. So if you notice big shifts in your mood, your changes in sleep habits, big changes in appetite or weight, difficulty with daily functioning. If you notice any of these warning signs, then it's time to pay a little special attention and give a little extra love and care to your mental wellness and engage your family members and friends in that, you know, so when you feel that way, reach out for support. That community support is so important to us feeling well again. Thank you for listening to this episode of supercharged life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho And remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. And take a moment to leave a review. It'll mean so much to me. I read all of your reviews. And today I wanted to shout out one of my reviewers who says that Dr. Judy never disappoints. Thank you so much, Yazi, for your review. And she says, I would highly recommend giving this a listen. Dr. Judy Ho always finds a way to capture our attention. Thank you for making this so insightful and relatable. And I look forward to more. Thank you so much for that lovely review. And if you leave a review for me, I will look forward to shouting you out on a future episode. And remember, if you have a question you want answered on this podcast, DM me and I will try as best as I can to get to them in the next few weeks. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, anytime is a great time to supercharge your life. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical, psychological, or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For medical, psychological, or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician, a psychologist, or other trained professional. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.